And it's important for people to understand that when we're talking about the second wave, that Black women, Latina women, Asian women, Native women were all there and that their leadership and ideas were widely influential. Um, and it is important to recognize the moments where feminists were divided by racism and exclusion, as well as examples where white women and women of color were able to find common ground. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Good evening, on. everyone. I am Gina Rosman Wendell, an organizer with Chicago for Abortion Rights and president of the Chicago chapter of the National Organization for Women. My pronouns are she and her. Welcome to our discussion panel for Nancy Rosenstock's tremendous new book, Inside the Second Wave of Feminism. Before we get started, I'd like to thank Haymarket Books for publishing Nancy's book, handling the technology, and providing the online platform for this event. Today, our three panelists will each provide their reflections on the book, and then we'll have a discussion of what lessons we can take away from the book and how we can apply them to the ongoing fight for equal rights. Although I've been a lifelong believer in equality, it wasn't until college that I actually self-identified as a feminist because the backlash against feminism in the 90s made a lot of women my age afraid of seeming too militant and scary to men. Not something I'm afraid of anymore. The fact that I was actually afraid to simply identify as a person who believes in the equality of the sexes, that all humans should have the same rights regardless of their biology or gender identification or sexuality, that shows how deeply ingrained into our societal fabric that the patriarchy is. As a white middle-class woman living in a liberal city, I was able to easily blind myself to the many ways that our society legally operates to keep rich white men at the top at the expense of everyone else. Police continue to murder black and brown folks with near impunity. States are continuing to pass laws designed to keep transgender athletes from playing the sports they love. And too many people are convinced that these kinds of laws and actions are necessary to protect our society. But we have to ask which society that would be protecting. Speaking of laws that claim to protect society, thanks to the fall of Roe, states are currently free to enact abortion bans at will. That does not really address the fact that nearly one quarter of Americans are going to have an abortion by the time that they reach 45. That's why we need every single person who cares about individual freedom, bodily autonomy, and equal rights to join this fight that Nancy and Delphine and their fellow women have been fighting for years and years and years now. Everyone needs to be in the fight right now to protect our reproductive rights. The right of people who can get pregnant to make the decision for themselves if they want to bring children into this world is a basic human right that needs protecting. If a woman doesn't have the right to control her own body, can she even be free? As my hero Ruth Bader Ginsburg had once said, our choice whether or not to bear a child is central to a person's life, their well-being, and dignity. When the government controls that decision for us, they treat us as less than fully adult humans responsible for our own choices. 
And we all know that now that Roe has been overturned, the unraveling of civil rights won't stop there. A number of major decisions from the Supreme Court that have protected the civil rights that women like Nancy and Delphine have been fighting for for years, such as gay marriage, access to contraception, and interracial marriage, are now in danger thanks to the court repudiating substantive due process. Only at our collective peril do we ignore the attacks on the right to abortion. In order to understand how we got to this point and how we can move forward into a better future, we should examine the lessons of our past. To that end, today we're very lucky to be joined by Nancy Rosenstock, the author of Inside the Second Wave of Feminism. This book introduces readers to the group called Boston Female Liberation that existed from 1968 to 1972 and had a remarkable impact on the growth and dissemination of feminist ideas and actions of the time. Nancy was one of Boston Female Liberation's members. Her book has three different sections. First, there are interviews with 13 women who were fellow members of Female Liberation, including Delphine. There are reflections on the topics of the day, including the August 26, 1970 strike for equality, the connection between the feminist movement and the anti-Vietnam War movement, and the fight to legalize abortion. The next two sections include amazing photos and documents from that time, including original writings from female liberation. Reading the section on the fight to legalize abortion so soon after the fall of Roe gave me chills. The horrors that these women described as spurring them to educate other women about abortion in 1970 are the same horrors that are already coming to pass in states where abortion is curtailed or banned outright today. Female Liberation's position paper for the 1971 conference that founded the Women's National Abortion Action Coalition that declared, as feminists, we believe that a campaign to repeal all abortion laws is a vital part of our struggle for the total liberation of our sex, remains just as salient today. Now, I'm going to turn it over to our three panelists to share their thoughts on the book before we have a lively discussion. First, we will hear from Delphine Welch. Delphine is one of the women whose reflections are in the book. Her upbringing and college experiences led her to become a feminist in 1969. She traveled the country giving demonstrations on Taekwondo and explaining the importance of self-defense for women, and later gave talks on the connection between feminism and socialism. She has a bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and a PhD in geological sciences from Virginia Tech. Throughout her life, Delphine has remained politically active and continued organizing, particularly in the fight for abortion rights. She has lived in Texas for nearly 30 years, and she also makes feminist jewelry that you can find on her website, DelphineWelchDesigns.com. <laughs> Next, we will have Lauren Bianchi. Lauren is going to share a young feminist perspective on the insights in the book. Lauren is a member of Chicago for Abortion Rights and a history teacher in Chicago public schools. Last but not least, we're going to hear from the author herself, Nancy Rosenstock. Nancy's been a feminist and socialist activist for five decades. In addition to being a member of Boston Female Liberation, she served on the national staff of the Women's National Abortion Action Coalition in 1971. Over the years, she's organized rallies for immigrant rights and women's rights and rallies opposed to racism, police brutality, apartheid, imperialism, and war. She's been a member of multiple industrial trade unions over the years and participated in four different national marches for women's rights in Washington, D.C. The 1978 March for the ERA, or the Equal Rights Amendment, the 1992 March for Women's Lives, the 1995 Rally for Women's Lives, and the 2017 Women's March. Nancy has been organizing around abortion rights in Chicago since 2009, and it's a key member of Chicago for Abortion Rights. 
Nancy continues to play an instrumental role in planning, planning CIFAR's many successful abortion rights demonstrations and has done so over the past several years. Now I'm going to turn it over to Delphine to get this started. Thanks, Delphine. Thanks, Gina. Well, I've read this book many times while Nancy was working on it, but I read it in in pieces. It was a real joy to read the published book all the way through. And I want to start off by thanking Nancy for not only coming up with the idea for the book, but following it through to the end. That is not an easy task. I also want to applaud her for doing a superb job of weaving all our stories together and making them into a book that is coherent, educational, and actually really fun to read. When I read the book recently and read about what we did back then and see the scope of our activities, I'm impressed. When did we sleep? (laughs) But that was 50 years ago, and we were younger then. We tackled so many issues that are, at that time, important to women and still important to women. Abortion rights, violence against women, childcare, the ERA, and at the same time, the anti-Vietnam War movement was growing. The burgeoning Black liberation movement and the fledgling gay liberation movement. We got involved in all of it. And we also published a magazine and a newsletter. August 26, 1970 was a day that I'll never forget. In Boston, Female Liberation joined with the National Organization for Women to create a coalition whose aim was to build a march and rally organized around three demands. Free abortion on demand with no forced sterilization, free community-controlled 24-hour available child care centers, and equal opportunities in jobs and education. Our event in Boston was one of nearly 100 demonstrations around the country, including the huge 50,000-person demonstration in New York City. As Nancy points out in her book, August 26 marked a turning point for the women's liberation movement as a whole, and Boston female liberation in particular. Prior to August 26, our focus had been primarily inward-looking, consciousness-raising, learning Taekwondo to defend ourselves from violence against women, and also including the way we were organized as small cells. And it was after August 26 that we in Female Liberation really started to reach out to attract new women and build the movement with a mass action focus. We got an office and started having weekly meetings open to all, democratically run. We put out a multi-page weekly newsletter. And remember, this was 50 years ago. There were no computers office supply stores where you could send something electronically to be printed and collated by a machine didn't exist. We had to type up stencils on typewriters and run them off on mimeograph machines with ink that you got all over yourselves and printed out sheets of paper that we then collated by hand and stapled and folded and put on the labels and the stamps every week to a mailing list of 1,000 and continuing to grow. I think you get the idea. In addition to the newsletter, 
which was a job in itself, we launched a new magazine called The Second Wave, a magazine of the new feminism. Many women contributed to it, articles, poetry, fiction, graphics, and news stories. This summer, some of us went to the Women's Convention in Houston. We had a booth that included displays of the first three issues of the second wave, and they were a big hit. Women would stand there and just thumb through it and read it. After August 26, 1970, we started to set up tables with our literature at campuses in the Boston area. This led to students at, at, at BU, Boston University, where Nancy went, and Northeastern, setting up campus chapters. The BU students wanted to host a conference. They got university financing for it, and the conference was very successful. Another activity was sponsoring a panel discussion on women's liberation and the Equal Rights Amendment. We also organized an overflow and packed speaking engagement for Anais Nin, who was a popular uh, uh, writer at the time of Diaries. Female Liberation participated with our own banner in the early Gay Pride marches, and you can see pictures of that in the book. One major undertaking was our leadership in a coalition to get a referendum on childcare on the November 1971 ballot in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I know you've heard of Cambridge, home of Harvard and MIT. In 1970, Cambridge was largely a working class city of 100,000. The referendum called for free community-controlled childcare available up to 24 hours a day. You had to get a certain amount of um, signatures to get a referendum on the ballot, and we got five times the number of signatures that were re required. And then when it was at the ballot box, it was approved by 76% of the vote. It was a tremendous, great win but the city council never put up the funding, so it didn't come to pass. In the period covered by the book, 1968 to 1972, the movement against the Vietnam War was a huge presence, growing exponentially after the killings of students at Kent State and Jackson State in May 1970. Leading up to the huge national April 24th, 1971 demonstrations in Washington, D.C. and San Francisco, female liberation helped, to helped build a contingent of women against the war. We marched carrying the female liberation banner, chanting that money spent on the war should instead be used to fund free 24-hour childcare, free abortion on demand, and equal pay. As Nancy says in the book, we sold nearly 1,000 copies of the magazine, The Second Wave, that day. We continued after that to help build the United Women's Contingent and participate in and speak at regional anti-war demonstrations and conferences. We even sent two of our members to a women's anti-war conference in Toronto, where 500 American and Canadian women that were there met with six women who came from Indochina. As we all know, before the Roe 
v. Wade decision in 1973, abortion was illegal in most of the country. And as Gina mentioned, the ramifications of these abortion bans in the late 60s and early 70s was horrific. Thousands of poor women died in back alley abortions, while women who could afford it traveled out of state or even out of country. More than anything, not having the freedom to control our own bodies kept and keeps women down. As Diana says in the book, the reason behind this is to perpetuate the myth of women's role as wife and mother. Female liberation became part of this fight, believing that accessible, safe, and legal abortion was the right of every woman and critical to the liberation of women. At the time, Black and Puerto Rican women were being sterilized, often without their consent or even sometimes without their knowledge. So it was important that we also add in the demand for no forced sterilization. We put out an educational pamphlet about abortion, and the second wave published Marianne Weathers' article, Black Women and Abortion. Female liberation was part of a committee that helped plan the National Women's Abortion Conference, and Female Liberation sent members to New York, including Nancy, to help organize it. The conference drew over 1,000 women and founded the Women's National Abortion Action Coalition. The conference called for all kinds of actions, from mass demonstrations to class action lawsuits. And in addition to the demands around abortion and forced sterilization, the conference called for the repeal of all contraceptive laws. And you, you may not know that in Massachusetts at the time, you could not get contraception without being married or saying that you were married or having a medical reason. When abortion became legal after Roe, other changes for women started to happen. The ERA started getting ratified by the states, affirmative action dissent decrees were signed in many industries, and women increasingly entered the workforce, including in non-traditional jobs. Those of you who are a lot younger than me have no memory of contraception or abortion not being readily available. It wouldn't occur to you that choosing to be a doctor, an engineer, an electrician, a steelworker is beyond your reach. You might not even know that before 1974, women couldn't have credit cards in our own name. Having the freedom to determine when or if to bear children is our most fundamental right. It's the floor upon which everything else is built. Back 50 years ago, I used to think about how we were going to truly attain the liberation of women. When I was hawking our journal in Harvard Square, I used to look at the Black Panther Party next, uh, members next to us uh, selling their paper and wonder how Black liberation could come about. I could see that the system was at the root of the oppression of both women and Black people. I could see that the system was at the root of the Vietnam War. But how could these movements come together? That led me to seek out and find answers in socialism. 
At the women's convention this summer, the banner that we had in our booth proclaimed second wave feminists still in the fight. Young women would come up to us and thank us for our work and apologize that it had to be done again. I am confident that young women, like those we met this summer, like the one young women in Chicago for abortion rights, will come together along with those of us from the second wave and build a movement that will win our rights. Thanks. Thank you so much, Delphine. And now we're going to turn it over to Lauren to share her perspective on Nancy's book before we hear from Nancy herself. Uh, thank you so much, Zena. Good evening, everybody. Um, so I want to start by thanking Nancy first for writing your wonderful book and for also inviting me to participate in this event. Um, thank you to Haymarket for hosting. Um, it's funny, I spend, as a teacher, um, I'm usually the oldest person in the room and uh, the voice of uh, <laughs> of wisdom. And so now I'm being called on to speak for younger people. So I'm going to have to shift. Um but in all seriousness, um, I'm going to share um, some of the standout issues that Nancy takes up in her book um, and how these accounts of the history of the second wave can inform our feminist activism today. And I will, in particular, uh, point out what I think is going to interest younger readers who are going to be learning this history for the first time. Um, and I also want to take a moment to step back and consider the context in which uh, we were all reading this book for the first time. So uh, the pandemic has been an extremely challenging time for women. In addition to the threat of the virus itself, we have seen threats to our ability to participate in the workforce due to a complete crisis and lack of afford affordability of childcare. We endured increased threats to women's rights and queer rights under Trump, and then a wave of anti-LGBTQ laws targeting transgender students and student athletes at the state level occurring in 2021. We've inherited now the consequences of nearly 50 years of backlash to the achievements of the women's liberation movement, with the biggest blow being dealt by the Supreme Court this summer with the overturn of Roe versus Wade. Um, thankfully, though, we are also seeing a renewed interest in feminist politics, especially for younger people over the last 10 years. I believe it was in 2013 that feminism was one of the top internet search terms, and we have a lot of younger celebrities kind of coming out as feminists. So feminism is um, always in the headlines, it seems. Um, we then had the massive women's marches in response to the election of Donald Trump, which were deeply impactful for the people who participated in them, but unfortunately didn't necessarily lead to sustained protests or movement building beyond that. So given where we're at today, Nancy's research really couldn't be published at a better time uh, because now more than ever, we need to understand what it took to win Roe and other victories in the first place as we're starting to think about what it's going to take to really win reproductive rights and gender equality today. Um, so for me, one of the most um, difficult aspects of really the decades of backlash against feminism and the lack of a mass feminist movement during my lifetime is that we haven't really had many opportunities to learn from different generations of women um, whose work that we're building on. 
So I am very thankful that in Chicago, we do have spaces like Chicago for abortion rights, where more recently we have like a multi-generational space where we're thinking through, um, you know, what it, what it means to kind of bring these, these different generational perspectives together. Um, and as I said, as a teacher, I spend most of my day talking to teenagers. So I do get to hear uh, what young people are thinking about the world. Um, and that does give me a lot of hope. Um, so I really believe the multiple perspectives of the feminist activists from Boston presented in the book will be an important bridge for younger feminists to learn more about the second wave. Um, so now I want to share some of what stood out to me uh, the most in the book. And particularly, I appreciate that Nancy challenges some of the misconceptions and myths about the second wave that really often go unquestioned among younger people. Um, so for feminists in my generation and also my students' generation, there are definitely misconceptions and misunderstandings about what the second wave was and who participated in it. I think probably the most popular and arguably the most damaging myth is this idea that only white women were involved in the women's liberation movement during the 60s and 70s, which completely erases the existence and the political contributions of women of color. Um, so Nancy mentions um, a lot of lesser known black women leaders, including Florence Kennedy, who published one of the first books about abortion, Abortion Rap, and Frances Beale, who was a leader of the Third World Women's Alliance, who wrote Double Jeopardy to be black and female. And then two of the primary source documents including, included in the book are essays by Marianne Weathers, including an argument for black women's liberation as a revolutionary force and Black women and abortion. So I think that younger readers will be excited to read about Black women's perspectives and experiences in their own words. Um, and it's important for people to understand that when we're talking about the second wave, that Black women, Latina women, Asian women, Native women were all there and that their leadership and ideas were widely influential. Um, and it is important to recognize the moments where feminists were divided by racism and exclusion, as well as examples where white women and women of color were able to find common ground. So um, the example of abortion rights activists taking up the demand to resist forced sterilization, which was impacting primarily Black, Latina, and Native women, uh, shows that feminists were not singularly focused only on winning legal abortion but also the right to fundamentally control our own bodies and make decisions about pregnancy and fertility. Um, the campaigns for free 24-hour childcare, which is something that I learned about in college, I believe like in a women's history class, uh, really show how confident activists were in demanding sweeping and transformative changes that would still be considered radical by today's standards. Um, I think one of the key lessons that I'm taking from this book is the political overlap that was happening at this time between social movements. So from civil rights and black liberation, the anti-Vietnam War movement, feminism, and the gay liberation struggles, the women in this book did not experience feminism as a single issue struggle. They were participants in many movements and saw them all as inherently interconnected. Um, for some of the women interviewed, it was civil rights or Vietnam or one of these other movements that wound up being their gateway into the women's movement. Um, and so I'm going to share um, some of my favorite examples um, of how women in Boston female liberation 
kind of sought to highlight uh, the connections between their movements and other struggles, uh, particularly the movement to end the Vietnam War and why that was so essential uh, to make that connection to women's rights in the United States. Um, so I'm going to read a passage from the document section of the book. Um, this is an excerpt from Feminism and the Anti-War Movement, a, a short article by Pat Galligan. We see that the same government which denies the people of Southeast Asia the right to self-determination also denies women the right to control our own bodies and lives. In April, President Nixon declared that his reverence for the sanctity of life extended even to the unborn in the womb. That is, of course, as long as it isn't the womb of a Vietnamese woman. How can that man talk about the sanctity of life when he has ordered and continues to order the murder and mutilation of countless Southeast Asians? He upholds the rights of the fetus while 7,000 women die each year in this country from botched illegal abortions. The hypocrisy we encounter at the centers of power is appalling. The American military system, which leads to the massacres of women and children and day-to-day -day ravaging of Vietnamese women, is an extension of sexist ideology, which dehumanizes all females. Women are raped and butchered here as well as in Vietnam. And then, um, so the author of that piece, uh, Pat Galligan, also spoke at an anti-war rally in Boston in 1971. Um, and so from the interview uh, section on the uh, uh, from chapter five on female liberation and the anti-Vietnam War movement, uh, Galligan argued that, quote, American women and the people of Southeast Asia have the same enemy. We want the U.S. government out of the war, out of our wombs, and out of our way. Um, and this just really stood out to me. I love the argument that she lays out in her article. Um, I, I think that it's really powerful the way that she made that connection in her speech as well. Um, and a major weakness of feminism in the United States during my lifetime, I really think is has been the inability to build solidarity among women's movements globally. Um, and this has really allowed feminism to be watered down to the point that women politicians can claim to be defenders of women's rights uh, while also voting to drop bombs on women and children overseas. Um, so I'm very excited that younger readers are going to get to see um, how this, uh, how feminists in the second wave, uh, re they refused to choose between women's issues at home and abroad and made that connection. Um, so yeah, I was extremely inspi inspired to read about the uncompromising ways um, that um, there, there's one section where I believe it is also Galligan saying that uh, we're not, we're also not subordinating our struggle to any other struggle. Um, we're recognizing that we can't win our freedom as long as women around the world are being oppressed by the same government that is denying us our rights at home. Um, and then I'll kind of wrap up by talking about, um, so I think another misconception that Nancy raises here um, about the second wave is that the second wave movement was only dominated by liberal majority white groups, such as the National Organization for Women led by Betty Friedan, um, and that there really hasn't been enough historical recognition of the impact of radical and revolutionary feminist 
groups like Boston Female Liberation. I certainly was un- very unfamiliar with what was going on in Boston. Um, and so you get the sense from women interviewed here that there actually could be collaboration between radical, even rebel- revolutionary and liberal feminist groups, that there were efforts to build coalition and find common ground um, in ways that really had um, mass and transformative change. Um, and so like, yeah, the example of the 1970 Women's Strike for Equality, I believe this was like the demand to have this event was not initially supported at first by groups like now, but eventually they were able to, you know, radical ideas, um, events, demands were able to be taken up by these larger, larger groups. Um, So overall, um, I'm incredibly excited that Nancy is bringing this history to younger readers, readers of all ages. I think there's a lot to dig into in this book. There are some things that um, are familiar, um, but there are are far more things that um, are presented in ways that I think um, are, this is not necessarily the narrative of the second wave that I've encountered before. um, And I'm excited to hear um, what questions come up tonight. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Angela Davis, an autobiography. Featuring a substantial new introduction by the author, Angela Davis, an autobiography is a classic account of a life in struggle. Angela Davis has been a political activist at the cutting edge of the black liberation, feminist, queer, and prison abolitionist movements for more than 50 years. First published and edited by Toni Morrison in 1974, Angela Davis and Autobiography is a powerful and commanding account of her early years of political activity. With warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction, Davis describes her journey from a childhood on Dynamite Hill in Birmingham, Alabama, to one of the most significant political trials of the century. From her political activity in a New York high school to her work with the U.S. Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soledad Brothers, and from the faculty of the Philosophy Department at UCLA to the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted fugitives. Find Angela Davis, an autobiography, at haymarketbooks.org. Thank you, Lauren. Um, With that, I'm going to turn it over to Nancy to give us her perspective on the wonderful accomplishment that we have been lucky to read. And after we hear from Nancy, we will get into a discussion of everything. So Nancy, take it away. Okay. First of all, I want to thank uh, Gina, Lauren, and Delphine for your participation in this panel and for and to Haymarket for uh, at publishing the book and putting together uh, the program tonight. Um, yeah, I'm very, very thankful for that. Um, My presentation today will take a look at the second wave of feminism, and I hope answer some of these questions. Why should you read this book? Why did I write it? What is the second wave of feminism, and what is its its significance for today? Learning about our history is very important. In fact, I think our history is a weapon in our liberation, especially when that history is written and told by us. That's the strength of this book. You will learn about the second wave of feminism, the years 1968 to 1972, in the words of the women who were involved. We will tell our story. 
not others. The women in this book are like you, ordinary women who through collective action found not only that they could do things that they never thought that they could do, but in the process affect meaningful social change and become part of history. This book, weaved together as a conversation, follows the evolution of 13 women, including myself. What emerges from these pages is a boldness, a breaking from the conventions of society, a thirst for knowledge, a desire to read and to discover the world. The opportunities for women growing up in the 1950s and early 1960s were limited. We were channeled into, quote, female occupations and denied opportunities to pursue subjects that may have been of interest to us, such as the sciences or medicine. Bowden, one of the women featured in the book who attended St. Lawrence University in upstate New York, explains, quote, I started out as a physics major, but later switched to literature because I could not keep up. At that time, women had curfews, and I was the only female in the class. My male classmates got together after hours to work on their lab reports, which I could not do. I was at a distinct disadvantage. We had no control over our bodies. Birth control was difficult to get, and abortion was illegal. When we tried to find a job, what did we face? Separate job listings for men and women, unequal pay, sexual harassment, and norms of dress, skirts and nylons, no pants. It was common at the time that married women not only take their husband's last name, but also his first name. So in the case of my mother, she was called Mrs. Jack Rosenstock. Her identity as an individual was totally erased. Many women began to question the role that society had carved out for them. We began to form consciousness raising groups where we discovered that our quote problems were not unique, but stem from our second class status in society. Second wave feminism began to take shape. We followed on the heels of the civil rights movement. And at the time the Vietnam war was raging. We were protesting the war and it was a time of social upheaval. Some of us like myself were active in opposing US military involvement in Vietnam. Like thousands of other young people at the time, I joined SDS, Students for Democratic Society. But over time, as women were relegated to mostly organizational tasks and the men did the speaking and most of the decision-making, I wondered, does it have to be like this? At the same time, women were dying in back alleys at the hands of butcher abortionists. I looked around and found Female Liberation, a radical feminist organization that was active. So what did the second wave accomplish? The biggest victory was the legalization of abortion, which for 50 years meant that an entire generation of women took this as a right. I'll come back to this since obviously the situation's changed. I believe that the changes in society's norms and cultural shifts in attitudes can be traced to the women's liberation movement of the 1960s. Challenges to the traditional view of the family with men as the breadwinners, changes in dress, changes in how we are identified with the widespread use of the word Ms. We have more opportunities to pursue different jobs and careers, whether it's becoming a machinist, a truck driver, a lawyer, or a doctor. 
The second wave of feminism was not monolithic. Female liberation was a part of the radical wing. We believe that our emancipation and gains could not be won by relying on politicians or their political parties, the Democrats and Republicans. We knew that if we didn't fight for our rights, no one would. We acted on that belief. We also believe that our struggle was not subordinate to others. As Nancy Williamson explained in one of the female liberation documents reprinted in the book titled, Why is Feminism Revolutionary? She states, quote, throughout history, women have been told that our rights are not important enough to justify a separate autonomous struggle. We have listened. We have fought the struggles of every other oppressed people. Anti-feminist forces are deluging us with arguments aimed at undermining our confidence and persuading us to delay the struggle to fight for, quote, larger battles. Arguments which glorify the greater importance of other causes are always aimed at destroying feminism and thus preventing the liberation of women. The place of women at this time in history is in the feminist movement. I hope after reading this book, Lauren touched on some of this, any misconceptions you may have about the second wave of feminism are laid to rest. One of the biggest being that it was strictly a white middle-class movement. If you haven't read Patricia Romney's book, We Were There, right here, you can order it from Feminist Press, I would urge you to do so. She recounts the history of Black and Third World Women's Alliance that she was a member of in the early 1970s. She interviews 33 of her fellow members. They published a newspaper called Triple Jeopardy, which I remember reading at the time. The group joined the August 26, 1970 march in New York City, carrying a huge banner that read, hands off Angela Davis. She has a uh, terrific photo of that right here in the middle of the book, in the front of the book, I mean. Angela Davis was underground at the time, having been accused of having supplied weapons for a raid on a California courtroom. Defending Angela Davis and other victims of government harassment and persecution was a feature of left-wing political life at the time. In addition, a national Chicana conference was held in 1971 in Houston, attended by 600 women. Another kernel of our history recovered. One of the workshop resolutions stated, quote, free legal abortion and birth control for the Chicana community controlled by the Chicanas. As Chicanas, we have the right to control our own bodies. Marianne Weathers, who um, Lauren mentioned, who's featured in the book, wrote a far-reaching article in 1969 titled An Argument for Black Women's Liberation as a Revolutionary Force. You can read the article in the book. The impact of the ideas in this article resonates today, which is why I was pleasantly surprised and happy to discover that is being used in many women and gender studies classes and has appeared in several anthologies about the second wave of feminism. Misconceptions about the women's liberation movement of the 1960s and early 70s have also come from the right wing. Caricatures of the women involved as man-haters, bra burners, out to destroy the family, to name just a few. Like other things that get repeated over and over again, Aspects of them live on in published consciousness to this day. Roe was one in the streets, 
is a common refrain that I've heard from activists today. However, I think this is an oversimplification. I applaud the sentiment, but there was more to the victory of legal abortion than just demonstrations. It might be more accurate to say Roe was won by engaging in independent political action. The rallies, marches, teach-ins, educationals, testimonials, which by the way were very powerful, where women publicly told their stories of getting an abortion, all of these different things were part of winning Roe. The victory of Roe also cannot be separated out from the times, the youth radicalization, the anti-Vietnam War movement. We were on the move and the victory reflected that. Another important thread that runs throughout the book is what type of organization is needed to fight for our rights. Differing political perspective arose, perspectives arose in female liberation. Should we have small cells of dedicated individuals or should we reach out and build a women's liberation movement, women's liberation organization, sorry, open to all? We also learned the importance of a coalition as we joined with others to build the August 26, 1970 women's rights demonstration in Boston that Delphine talked about. We also worked on a broader committee, we worked in a broader committee to put out, put a child care referendum on the ballot in Cambridge in 1971. We quickly learned that no right is secure. Only four years after the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, the Hyde Amendment was passed, barring the use of federal funds to pay for abortions, making it extremely difficult for women on Medicaid, mainly poor and black women, to obtain an abortion. Now, 50 years later, Roe v. Wade has been overturned and the ability to get an abortion is extremely restricted. So I think we need to step back and ask ourselves, why is this happening? Sometimes at abortion rights rallies, I've seen a woman about my age carrying a sign that says, I can't believe I still have to fight this or something like that. But did we ever really believe that once we won legal abortion, all would be okay? Did we not think that there would be a pushback? It's important to remind ourselves that the attacks on our rights are not solely from the right wing or right-wing extremists or Christian fundamentalists. Yes, they are our enemies, but it's the government that makes the laws. These right-wing forces are emboldened by the government. It's also the government that's launched an ideological campaign, a campaign to keep us in our place. It's directed not just against women, but also against trans people, gays and lesbians. We know that an attack on one is an attack on all, and the government will not stop in its attempts to push us back. The right-wing forces are also emboldened by the dead-end strategy that the liberal wing of the women's movements followed for the last 50 years, a strategy of relying on the Democratic Party. We ceded the streets to the right wing. The strategy of relying on ourselves of mobilizing our power in the streets in sustained actions needs to be reconquered. There are no shortcuts. That is the strategy. And as a result of these mobilizations, we will feel empowered. We will gain self-confidence. Bowdoin says it very well in the book, describing what it was like to march in the gay pride demonstration in New York City in 1971. She says, quote, I'll never forget marching down Fifth Avenue with my sisters 
in a sea of gay people. The march was huge. I started to feel the power that we had as a mass movement and felt invincible. Finally, I am a socialist. In fact, a number of us involved in female liberation became socialists. You can follow our political evolution in chapter seven of the book. We learned that this system, capitalism, cannot meet our needs, nor can we win true emancipation for women in a system that values profit over human needs, a system that benefits economically from the second-class status of women. Today, the crisis we face is extreme. We're fighting for control over our bodies. We're fighting to keep our children healthy in a society that devalues health care. There is no adequate, adequate daycare system. We struggle to juggle our jobs with our children as the COVID-19 pandemic rages on and as our kids are sent home from school for one week here, one week there. We're standing up and saying, no, we will not accept this. We will not accept a society that pays us less than men. We will not accept that our natural role, quote, is defined as that solely of wife and mother. No. We will decide if and when we will have children. We are fighting for, for a society where all can be what they want to be. I continue to be inspired by the international struggle, and I'm glad that Lauren raised this issue. It's really important. From the courageous women in Iran today, to the fighters in Argentina, the green wave, organized over years, ending up in the victory of illegal abortion. To the thousands who marched here in the United States last Saturday, which followed on the heels of some student walkouts in various cities on October 6th. Thank you, and thank you all for participating. I look forward to the discussion. Thank you so much, Nancy. Um, so I do have some questions lined up that I think will get us started in a really interesting conversation. Um, if you in the audience have any questions that you would like us to address, um, please drop them in the chat. And if we have time to get to them, I'll be glad to include them in the conversation. I'm going to get started with something that we've all touched on a little bit in our remarks, and that's the importance of intersectionality in the feminist movement. Um, as the book really does a great job of pointing out, and we've just talked about, the second wave is not just white women, and the belief that it was just white women in the second wave is erasure of all of the hard work of women of color that did take place. Um, it's interesting to me, just as someone with National Organization for Women now, um, a lot of times when you think about now, it is known as a predominantly white organization. And that's been the case a lot of the time, despite the fact that one of the co-founders of the organization in 1966 was Polly Murray who was a phenomenal Black activist, and she had hoped that now would be kind of an NAACP for women's rights. Um, whether or not it lived up to that, one can only make that own decision for themselves. But I'd love to hear from each of you about what you think the importance of intersectionality was back at the time of the second wave and why you think it's still so important now. So Nancy, if you could get us started on that. Okay. Well, actually, that kind of gets me to what um, Lauren was also raising about internationalism, because um, I thought that was a really good point that you were making, Lauren, and really important about how um, 
you know, that we, we have to have the solidarity internationally and have the part that where we were involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement and we saw that the same government that was murdering Vietnamese uh, men, women, and children is the same government that was denying us the right to be able to have, to control our own bodies here. But that's extremely important. So I think, I mean, the thing when you were saying that, Lauren, the thing that struck me, I was thinking at the time was the women in Iran today, um, because um, last weekend here in Chicago, at least, we had a very large contingent of Iranians um, with chants, with a big banner that said, say her name, um, I have it right here, um, Masha Amini, um, and the protests in Iran just continue to go on and on and on, led by women. Um, so that's kind of what struck me, and I we should can creatively, you know, um, in, C4, in Chicago for abortion rights and other groups that were involved in locally come up with ways that we can educate more about that. But I think, um, and Gina, I never, I never knew the name of that woman who uh, founded now in 1966. That's a really uh, important um, thing to add to our uh, general knowledge about what, about the uh, history of feminism. Um, I was also struck with what uh, both Gina and Lauren said about um, this is not really totally on your question, but just to throw it in here um, about the backlash, really, that came for a whole period of time of for women like yourselves who um, I hadn't really thought about it like that in terms of the backlash that came at the time of publicly identifying or even thinking of yourself as a feminist at the time. Um, and that, but that that has begun to change, I think, as the crisis in this country uh, deepens and as the attacks on women um, and others deepen, more and more will identify themselves as feminists and will step forward and join the fight. So the intersectionality that you refer to, I think, um, has always been a cornerstone. We didn't use that word back then, but it's always been a cornerstone of, of uh, you know, the women's movement and hopefully will continue to be so. Great. Um, Delphine, could you expand on that? Add anything that you might be thinking in terms of the collaboration, um, perhaps with Female Liberation and some of the other groups that we talked about with different movements? And if you see any reflection like that now. She Sorry, Delphine, you were currently muted. So hang on one sec, if you can unmute there. You uh, one of the things that comes out in the book is is all the different ways that those of us who are interviewed came into female liberation, came to feminism. I I for me it was direct. It, my experiences led me right there. But for uh, some of the other women, they they were involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement first, and that led them to female liberation and and feminism. Nancy was not just the anti-war movement, but SDS was also a more political organization. Um, you know, looking at um, you know looking looking more, I would say at at. Um, at capitalism, would you say that, Nancy, or somewhat, anyways? And so she came in from 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 different ways. Some women were socialists already, and then came into the came into the um, into female liberation and the and the women's movement. But it was with everything going on at the time, it, it, which is something that today is is not imaginable because we didn't have 
we don't now have that phenomenal anti-war movement, stu- you know, uh, the whole student movement, um, the black, what was called then the Black Liberation Movement. I mean, we do have um, organizations, but we're, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people around us rising up. It sort of forces the issue. You know, either you're you're involved or you're you're in, you know, you're on the sidelines. Um, and I think it became clear to many of us that there, that there was this need to um, to work together. That because especially seeing you know as it was obvious that it was you know the capitalist system, it was a, the 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 government. I mean, when Nixon says things like you know what Nancy quoted. You have to make the connection between uh, the women's movement and the anti-war movement. So it, it was, it's, it's, I mean, there's, when we talk about intersectionality now, it's, um, I don't want to say it's, it's force. That's not the the right word, but it, it's not as um, quite as as surrounding us as as it was then it was just so huge then that that i mean i remember going um so i did not come from i would you know sort of the the um may 4th hit me afterwards you know it was like oh wow okay and there's this anti-war movement and and students are getting killed and i remember going to this huge meeting at harvard i mean that the, the, the it was um uh, i don't know how many people were were in that room you know and becoming part of that was 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 really um inspiring and you wanted to be part of it so there was that feeling as well as that that it was so big that you you had to be part of it I don't know. Those are some of my thoughts. Lauren, um, as someone who I know that your personal history, you've been in, in activism for about 11 years here in Chicago, some give or take. Do you think that the movement that we're seeing on the ground does reflect the same kind of intersectional values and the sense of everyone needing to be in the room together working for it or do you think that there are ways that we could work together as a coalition to improve that relationship now? Yeah. So I think um, my initial reaction to this question about like uh, what does intersectionality in the feminist movement look like today versus in the past? Um, yeah. I mean, I would agree with Delphine that like, it's not that it's forced, but it's it's less organic, right? Because there may be months, if not years, between an abortion rights protest and a Black Lives Matter protest. And so sometimes that means that like, all right, we need to make sure that we have speakers at, a, at an event that are specifically going to remind people like, hey, these struggles are connected because it's not always obvious to people in ways that I think clearly I get the sense from the book that it was very easy for people to make these connections because you could go to a meeting one night and the next night go to this, uh, go to an anti-war meeting, right? Um, And march with thousands of people and meet and constantly be meeting people that are making those connections. Um, At the same time, like in my earlier comments where we haven't, where I referenced like 
my experience that there hasn't been a mass feminist movement like the second wave during my lifetime. Um, That's not, that's also not to say that there haven't been mass movements that are feminist. So, I mean, the ways in which um, like in both in 2013 and 2020, the, the different kind of waves of the black lives matter struggle have been led by women have been led by mothers whose children were murdered. Uh, the ways in which uh, black women activists have kind of raised the slogan, uh, say her name in response to the, the ways that we tend to ignore the, the murder and violence towards black women, um, have been incredibly influential. Um, Black Lives Matter activists here in Chicago using feminist practice in their meetings. Like, um, so the, the broad influence that feminist politics continue to have, um, you know, is something that it's kind of just below the surface. Um, so I think that like, there are in the same ways in which like the education justice movement in Chicago around Um, access to schools and learning um, and safe housing and all the resources that families need to be able to send their students to school. I mean, that is very much rooted in these demands for community-controlled childcare. Um, The fact that public schools, uh, many public school systems serve free breakfast, like the Black Panthers had organized, right? Like all of these things are still impacting us and have reverberated reverberations today. Um, but we just haven't quite seen, we just haven't quite seen, uh, experienced something quite like the second wave. Um, though I think the, the women's marches, um, I was able to go to the women's march in DC, I think was a flavor of it. Um, but the level of organization, I, I really appreciate what, what Nancy said that when we say that Roe was one in the street, that that's kind of half or only a, a fraction of the story. Um, and yeah, we've, we've been in the streets, but we haven't really figured out how to have um, ongoing independent political action. So I completely agree with everything we've all been saying. Um, I think it's really interesting that, you know, at these rallies we keep going to, I've heard a lot of people, myself included, talk about how the legal underpinnings of Roe are directly related to the legal underpinnings of the rights of groups of color and gay people. And it's um, interesting to me that it's kind of seems like there's still some, in some areas, a disconnect between the understanding of that concept and the reality on the ground of getting everyone to come together for independent political action. Um, So as we've been talking about, um, you know, Nancy, particularly you said that you don't think that this idea of Roe being one in the streets encompasses everything that we should be doing um, and what was done back in the day. Um, So I'm curious as to if you have any ideas about ways we can be supplementing the demonstrations that are going on right now. and also what importance you think that the demonstrations still do have in winning our right back to abortion. Um, okay. Well, thanks, Gina. Um, you always have a way of posing the questions. Um, well, I, I think the demonstrations are extremely important. Um, no matter what the size are, I remember, um, I've been on many demonstrations with Lauren actually over the years. Um, and I can remember one when Lauren and I, a few years back were, 
uh, before the pandemic, marching down um, the main street in Chicago State Street, uh, chanting at the top of our lungs. Um, there were only maybe 300 of us, but we thought we were doing pretty good at the time. Um, but um, last weekend, we had about 1,500 or 2,000 or so here in Chicago. So I think all of these demonstrations are extremely important because not only do they, um, we feel empowered and get a sense of our power, um, but it also shows that we're out there um, and, we're, and we get the media coverage and people who don't come see that it's, an, it's still an issue. Um, and the truth is that the majority of people support legal abortion. The majority of people are not opposed to over. I mean, we're, we're opposed to the overthrow of, uh, of Roe. Um, so there's obviously a big disconnect between the Supreme Court and the majority of the of, of American people. Um, but I when I was referring to, you know, Roe was one in the streets. I, you know, because, like I said, it was an over oversimplification because it's not like you just hold one demonstration, another and another, and then eventually. Um, but, you know, one of the things is that, and there are groups like this that are out there now. They're called, you know, we testify and shout our abortion and so forth. But somehow we haven't all figured out a way to hook up. Um, there is a really, um, if I can find it here, um, one of the things that we did, um, as Gina called it back in the day, um, was that we, we also held abortion tribunals, um, which are similar to what, um, you know, are, are similar to we testify and shout our abortion. Um, and in um, 1969, in March of 1969, um, I mean, so you have to sort of put yourself in the time frame. Think about this. There was a big uh, a tribunal held. This is years before Roe v. Wade was 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 passed. Um, and there was an article in the Village Voice, which I happened to dig up a while back, um, written by Susan Brown Miller, who's a well-known feminist. Um, and she starts out by saying, 12 young women faced an audience of more than 300 men and women last Friday evening. And with simplicity and calm and occasional emotion and even humor, told of incidents in their personal lives, which they formerly had consigned to the very private. They rapped about their own abortions. And so, I mean, I can just imagine that must've just been like an unbelievable experience. Um, and so, you know, just getting more of these kinds of things, I think, you know, um, going, and we obviously also need a national network of some sort, uh, in my opinion, you know, um, the, the government has now forced us to fight this out state by state. Um, we would prefer to fight it out at a federal level, obviously. Um, and some of the Republican politicians want to impose, you know, a, a national, a federal, a national abortion ban. So, you know, we have to be able to hook up with other, um, there's going to a referendum coming up on the ballot in Michigan, a neighboring state to Illinois, uh, proposition three, um, which, you know, they'll be holding a demonstration October 22nd in Lansing. We want to go there. We want to help, you know, get, get, you know, get abortion legal um, in, in uh, keep abortion legal in Michigan. But, you know, fighting the state by state is different than fighting it on a federal level. So, you know, we'll have to all put our heads together and come up with different ways that we can continue to keep the fight going. Because we also know they'll, they'll go after contraception. They'll go after the uh, medication abortion. They'll be going after gay marriage, as Gina explained. Yeah, I... Um... I think I read an article that a woman in Michigan actually had her gynecologist tell her that she needed to talk to her husband to see if he would give consent for her to get a pap smear 
which is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. Yet apparently just the, you know, the loss of Roe in itself is enough for people to just go kind of buck wild with the idea of what can and can't be done right now. Um, which does lead me to another question, and I'd wanted to ask everyone, but we haven't heard from Delphine in a minute, so I'm going to start with you. Um, Delphine, you and Nancy, your work was how part of was part of how we got Roe in the first place, and we had that national right to abortion. Could you re- reflect on what it meant to you when that actually did become law, and then kind of how it's felt to watch it be overturned and see the work that you've done, sort of you know, not getting the credit that it's due at this point. You're muted. Delphine, you're still muted again. I remember where I was. Um, and I, d- I don't remember if it was I was in New York or, or, or D.C., but I was in the WONAC office, the Women's National Abortion Action Coalition, because we were we were looking at what our next action should be. And we we're talking about like a national tribunal. And I remember hearing about it and we all just were sitting there with our mouths open. You know, this is great. What do we do next? And um and maybe there are maybe there is more we could have been doing, except that it was it, it's hard to rally people when you've just had a great win. People people aren't interested in 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 doing anything, really. You know, it's like what else what else is is there to do? Um, so that it was really fantastic. Now, when Roe came down, I mean, I remember. I, I, I was out of town and I, I was I heard it on the radio and I just sat in my, I was in my car. I was heading home and I just sat there and cried. You know, it was you knew it was coming. It's like, why am why am I being so emotional? <laughs> this is not this is not surprising. Um, but what really hit me. Um, so that was the morning of, of the of the the decision day. And I was driving back to Austin and I got back to Austin in time to be at the Capitol. There was supposed to be a march from um, a federal building to the Capitol. And because I was late, I had to go directly to the Capitol. And I may, I was even later because I made a, you know, a really crappy sign because I went to Joanne's. I don't know if Joanne's is national or not. They're supposed to have poster board and they didn't. You know, I had this floppy stuff. I put wood on the back of it. I was just trying to make my sign. So I was standing there with a bunch of other people, women and men. We were chanting. And and as the march turned the corner to come up Congress Ave, I was just taken aback. It was, I mean, this was June in Austin. It was over a hundred degrees. So you're sweating, but I was, I was so thrilled to see this huge march. There were at least 3000 people and they were coming up towards me. You know, my, the sweat mingled with my tears. I really felt like, my God, this next generation is going to pull it off. You know, they're out, they're out today. They're going to come back. This is going to happen. And I felt really proud of you young people (laughs) that, that you did that. Um, 
And when people came up to us at the convention and would say, you know, we're sorry you have to do this again, it's like, you don't have to say that. That's okay. We're here. We're we're going to be there. We're coming out with you. We don't know how long this is going to take, you know, and, and um, you may only have us for a while, but um, we're here and we're, we're ready to fight. Nancy, do you have anything to add to that? Um, well, when I heard about the, when I, I mean, I knew the decision was coming down also, I was really, really angry. Um, and, um, I just wanted to get out in the streets and start screaming and, you know, with, with obviously with lots of other people to do that as well. Um, so yeah, I was just really, really angry. I can't remember exactly where I was. Oh, I know where I was, but anyway, um, yeah, anger. Now I personally was stuck in my bed the day that the decision came down because I had COVID <laughs> and I had been hanging on like a lifeline to the idea of being able to be in that rally in that space with other people to express my anger um, and not having gotten to do that. It really does kind of drive home the point of how collective action can give you that inspiration and hope that you need to keep going. Um, it's kind of interesting among people, at least around my age, I'm 36. So in their mid thirties, I've seen kind of a mix of some people who are really fired up and motivated and some people who are kind of just apathetic almost because they see the world. There's so many terrible things happening. This is one on a list. Um, so Lauren, I'm curious as to what you see in your fellow in people our age as well. You're slightly younger than I am if you're seeing kind of the same reflection or if there's something particularly motivating some of the younger folks out there who might be actually just getting into the fight now and what they're doing about it. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, well, I mean, on the one hand, if we, <laughs> I thought that there, I thought that, um, for, for several years, yeah, about 10 or 11 years, um, that I've been active in, you know, clinic defense protests, counter protesting the anti-choice right. Um, I feel like the conversations I was having with activists of all different ages was like, if we don't get more people to fight back with us and join us, we're going to lose row or we're just going to, even if we don't lose row, there's just going to be more and more um, trap laws and restrictions at the state level that are going to, you know, make it incredibly hard for people to access abortion. Um, but like the trade-off to that or, or the half, the other half of that was like, well, if we lose row, um, then people will, people will join us. People will be ready to fight back at that point because so people, so many people will be angry and, um, infuriated by that. That's going to be the thing that, uh, that kind of sparks a new feminist movement. And to be honest, it has been, um, kind of disheartening that there had, that it's going to take a lot more than that apparently. Right. So we've had these, uh, he, we had these huge protests and, and people did get out into the streets in the days and weeks immediately uh, following the Supreme Court decision. Um, but again, I guess I, I expected people to kind of go back to their neighborhoods, go back to their communities, call emergency meetings, um, 
plan for like start building national networks and at least, you know, I'm not hearing, <laughs> I'm not hearing as much as I thought I would in a post-Row America about what we're going to do next. Of course, that really varies by state. So I'm not, certainly there are people who have been working overtime to, you know, make sure that abortion restrictions uh, cannot stand at the state level. Um, but it, it does feel kind of like the rug has been pulled out from under us. Um, and in some ways it, it feels like we're kind of starting uh, at, <laughs> it feels like we're kind of starting uh, from the beginning um, and we have to figure out like there is, we don't, we don't have the infrastructure at the federal level or even at the local level in a lot of places. We don't have the meeting spaces. We don't have the feminist organizations where people can just go and like strategize together. Um, and so I, I have a lot of hope that younger people are going to take that, take up that banner and build that infrastructure. Um, but at this point, it's yeah, it feels um, it fe the future feels very uncertain. But you know that we can only go up from here at this point. Um, can I add something to that? Yes, please, Nancy. Um, well, actually, I think um, what, what what Lauren just said is really important. Um, I think you know it's usually. Um, victories that spur people on as opposed to defeats. Um, so um, I think a lot of people have, you know, it, and I also think what I said in my uh, um, original comments, we're paying a price for um, a 50 year strategy put, put forward by the liberal wing of the, of the women's movement, the wing that won out over the radical wing um, of relying on, you know, uh, elections and politicians and, and not relying on ourselves. And so with that strategy combined with, with roving being overturned, it's left a lot of people either demoralized or confused, I think, um, about what to do next. So in a certain sense, we are starting from the ground up um, and it will take, um, you know, new waves of, uh, not to overuse the word wave, but to, you know, new, new, new forces uh, coming forward and, and uh, you know, us collectively figuring out, you know, what's the way forward and how are we going to win back our rights? Uh, at the same time, we have a whole other side, a very, very important side of, of the abortion rights movement, which is, you know, the abortion funds, um, like the Chicago Abortion Fund, for example, and others, which have over the years and even and more so now, you know, raising money uh, to help women get abortions and help people, you know, get to a state where they can get an abortion, find a doctor and so forth. So all of that is extremely important and that's going on and will continue to go on. Um, but at the same time, we have to figure out how we can win back our rights change the laws at the same time that we're helping helping women in the real world figure out how they can get an abortion, whatever it takes, money, transportation, housing, and so forth. So when we're talking about kind of feeling a little bit almost at a loss of where to go from here, I wanted to turn back to something that Delphine, you mentioned in your comment earlier about how you really felt that the strike for equality um, August 26th in 1970 was a turning point and how the demonstration was so important in kind of galvanizing moving forward. And I'm wondering, what do you think the magic was there? Is there something we can look at from there 
that we can look at now as maybe kind of instructive as to what we can try to be getting from what the kind of movement that's happening today. Wow. Magic. I, I, I don't think there was any magic, but here I finally, I have my microphone on and I'm not sure what to say. Um, there was not, there was not anything like this was, that was the first thing that happened in our, for our generation. Um, you know, we were following that. It was called on the 50th anniversary of, of, of winning the right to vote. And really, um, I mean, we had we had that, in, you know, there was a major war in between winning the white right to vote. We had um, the Second World War um, and there was a, 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 the role of women um, in the in the, in the war was um, something not to be ignored. But there was still it, there was no movement really in between i wouldn't i would say there wasn't any movement in between the the push to win the right to vote and the in the second wave um for for us and we hadn't had a a march you know that was organized by led by and primarily composed of women uh that was, was the first time for me probably of of a, a lot of the women who were there and um so it was magical for for us, but I don't know that there's any magic that we can impart um, from that aside from aside from doing it. Uh, Nancy, what do you think? Well, I agree. There was no magic. It was just it was it was a um, gigantic outpouring of you know women's aspirations and frustrations at the role that they were assigned in society um and it just was this giant outpouring of of uh we are here you know we are angry we we want equal rights we want you know and if you th actually um um, if you think about it, there are the three demands. These are 50,000 people marching down Fifth Avenue and in 90 other cities around the country. Um, the demands, free abortion on demand, no forced sterilization, equal opportunities and jobs, and free 24-hour community-controlled child care centers. Here we are in 52 years later, and none of those demands have been met, not a single one. Um, and so you think, like, wow, how could that be, you know, like 50 years later? Um but again, it's what I was talking about in terms of, of, of strategy and so forth. But um, to me, it was I don't I don't think there's anything we can, you know, there's no blueprint. You know, there's no blueprint you can take from, you know, 1970 and transpose it to today. Um, the times are different. It's a different situation. Um, we just, you know, I think we'll in our in all the groups that we're in, we'll have to just figure this out collectively. Um, but that was just a a mass outpouring of, you know, of women. I don't think it's a surprise, though. I don't, and I know you don't either, that those demands haven't been been won. Um, yeah. Those demands are not going to be won in uh, in a capitalist system. You know, we we need radical change for you know for free abortion on demand, you know, free twenty four hour childcare, equal pay for equal work. I mean. <laughs> We're going to get pieces of it, and we got a piece with Roe, you know. But we're not going to, you know. We've got what do we have? Um, Anti-sexual harassment laws, and um, it, you know, and and um, 
seminars that company employees have to take in order to not, you know, learn about harassment, you know, learn about, about, um, um, African-Americans, any people of color, any, any, um, people of a, of a different sexuality than them. People are, something is happening, but we're not going to have all of that, you know, in a society um, like the one we have now. I think that's a really great point. Because um, when I think about these three demands, I can think of some ways where we have gotten kind of like some half progress on that. You know, there are some government programs now like Head Start where we do have some funding for childcare. Like it's, it's better than it was in some ways, yet there's so much left to do that I think it is a good point that the system that we're in right now, it makes it really difficult to see how you can actually do it. Um, which does lead me to, I had, I would love to hear some thoughts from all of you on, um, I know that Delphine and Nancy, you identify as socialists. I'm not, I think you do, Lauren, I'm not 100% certain. but um, there is this mainstream stigma against the idea of socialism. And I'd love to hear about how we can make those the dots connected between socialism and feminism in a way that gets people to understand that socialism is not some sort of crazy idea that will ruin society, but rather there's a lot instructive in there that we really could be learning from. So I'd love to hear from each of you on that. And I think that'll probably actually take us to the end of the program. I, I, I just, something popped in my head. I just have to say, because I, 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 I was at a, a, a conference once with a, uh, a speaker, everyone in the room was a socialist and it was talking about Gus Horowitz was a speaker and he was talking about, you know, imagine if there was a country that we could point to and say that is what we're fighting for and and you know the 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 closest we can come today is cuba and you know it, it, people see how poor and um oppressed it is which is all, all due to the blockade by the united states but um imagine if if we could point to a country which is unlikely to happen because socialism really has to be international or it's really not going to work. But um, I just wanted to mention that to start this off. It's a really interesting point. Um, Lauren, why don't we hear from you? And then Nancy, the author who brought us all together, you can close us out on that. Yeah. So I do identify as a socialist. And now that I'm thinking about it, um, yeah, I mean, I think when I was probably around 19 and 20, when I moved from the Chicago suburbs to Chicago um, to attend college, um, I knew I wanted to live in the city. Um, I knew that there would be more, I could find um, other, I could find um, other activists um, and like-minded people and participate in, in protests and things like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I kind of became a feminist and a socialist at the same time because, um, as I was kind of grappling with what it meant to fit, uh, with what it meant to challenge sexism and challenge gender discrimination, um, I wanted, I, I mean, I, 
although the conditions and uh, the experience, like my, my experiences have been very different than the women of Nancy and Delphine's generation. Um, but I very much identified with, um, I very much identified with, um, this, uh, like wanting to know why, you know, why, (laughs) why is this happening? Um, and how do we stop it? Um, and is it possible to have a world, uh, free from sexism, free from racism? And the only people, the only thinkers who were able to answer that question for me, uh, called themselves socialists. Um, so for me, I was like, all right, how we get, how we have a world where people of all genders, um, as Nancy said, can be who they are is we have to get rid of capitalism. So that's what it meant for me. Fascinating. Um, Nancy, please take us home. Very well put Lauren. Um, well, you know, I consider myself a socialist, but I also consider myself an uncompromising feminist. And I don't think they're contradictory, um, because to be an uncompromising feminist and to win all the demands that Delphi just explained how you, they, they can't be one under, under capitalism to win all of those demands. Um, you, you need, you need to totally reorganize society, um, where it's not a profit ridden, um, society that benefits off of the oppression of women. Um, and so, you know, you still see all kinds of ways in which this happens, it just even 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 at this day and age. You know, you just look at some of the advertisements on TV or whatever and how um, women's bodies get um, we're, we, we get used as sexual objects to be able to sell different commodities. Um, so the only way that we're going to be able to to truly win women's liberation, in my opinion, is through um, uh, is 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 through a socialist revolution. Um, and short of that, um, we will win reforms along the way. As, as Delphine explained, well, you know, we'll, we can win, you know, the right to abortion. We can win other things. They won't be, they won't be free. Uh, we're not going to get free 24 hour community controlled childcare centers. Um, but we can win things along the way. And as we win things along the way, we will, like I explained, will be victories that will inspire other victories and will more and more of us will begin to organize. And, um, and it won't just be like getting back to the very first question, Gina, of intersectionality. It won't be just women. You know, I, for a while, what you'll, you'll read in the book, I, for a while thought women could just do, we could just do this ourselves. We didn't need men, you know, but okay. I discovered that wasn't possible. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll do it with blacks, with, 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 with blacks and other people. Um, who are fighting for their liberation and we'll do it with hooking up with the people in Iran who are in the streets today. Um, So, um, and it will be a worldwide phenomenon, but the only way we're going to do that is to join in the fight. And so my final words would be, if you get nothing else out of this book or nothing else out of this discussion, this wonderful discussion tonight, it's that we have to do this ourselves and we have to rely on our own strength. And it's through doing that, that we'll make fundamental social change. And thank you to Gina, Delphine, and Lauren, and thank you to Haymarket and to everybody else. There were no questions from the chat. Like, <laughs> I didn't see any. No. <laughs> okay. Um, we just our conversation was just popping off so well that I think people wanted to watch it unfold. Wow. Um, you know, it does. I'm sad that we're out of time because I had so many more questions that I could have asked to keep <laughs> it going. Um, but one one of my closing thoughts that I'll think about is it was really interesting timing. I had been reading the book and. Got the whole chapter about um, the rejection of societal norms of beauty and all of that, which I, again, I would have loved to talk about, but we got so involved in our discussion and didn't get there. Um, but when we're talking about the importance of connecting with the women of Iran, 
right after I read that chapter where we talked about how at demonstrations, cutting people's yep. hair off to show, you know, liberation from the patriarchal chains. I've seen pictures of women in Iran cutting their hair off today. So the echo of that is just so powerful to me. And it really does give me hope that this, you know, these symbols of unleashing yourself from the restrictions that we're in in society, that they echo everywhere. And if we all come together to really understand the power of that, you know, I do, I have hope that that'll end up getting us to the change we need. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my closing word on the matter. Um, is there any other final words that anyone wanted to say before I thank everyone for coming to join us tonight? You hit it on the head. Thank you. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure being a moderator. I feel, thank you so much, Nancy, for asking me to step part in this. It's been a real delight. And I thank everyone for listening and really, again, just keep up the faith and keep up the fight. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org. 